0: to this edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care.
1: My name is Benjamin Smoot, and I'm one of the integrated cardiac surgery residents at the University of Pennsylvania. On behalf of the Thoracic Surgery Residents Association, it's my pleasure to have Dr. Vaporjan today Uh, joining us for a conversation. Among his many roles, he is tenured professor of surgery at the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center in Houston, where he serves as chairman of the Department of Thoracic and Cardiovascular Surgery. With particular relevance to today's conversation, uh, he's also the chair of the Thoracic Surgery Directors Association. Thank you for joining us. Um, My
2: pleasure, Benjamin.
1: So with all the changes going on in clinical rotations, uh, education, um, and case volume in thoracic surgery, I was hoping that we could just spend a few moments to discuss how the COVID-19 pandemic is uh, affecting cardiothoracic surgery uh, surgical trainees. Would you briefly walk us through just sort of the precise roles of the ACGME, the Thoracic Surgery uh, Review Committee, the ABMS, the ABS and ABTS, TSD, and all these acronyms uh, that are affecting thoracic surgery uh, resident education? and give you the broad view. So
2: the ACGME, the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education, is a board. It has a board of directors, and its job is to oversee the quality of training programs. So it is not interested in the individual trainees as much as it is interested in the quality of the programs that are training those individuals. Are they uniform? Are they applying the same standards across different institutions in different countries? Historically, programs, you know, 100 years ago, did whatever they wanted, uh, taught whatever they wanted, uh, emphasized whatever they wanted. The ACGME was stood up within the AMA to standardize this and make sure that no matter where a trainee went anywhere in the United States, they received a similar education with similar standards. It's no different than whoever accredits high schools or colleges, etc. Now, the ACGME board sets up all the rules. It then hands off the work of applying those rules to the review committees. So the review committees are made up of members of that discipline. So the review committee for thoracic surgery is made up of thoracic surgeons. There is a very very clearly defined process of how you get picked to be on that committee. There is a very strong conflict of interest policy that is aggressively adhered to to make sure that the accreditation process is free of conflict. And those review committees are overseen or assisted by an executive director who is a member of the ACGME. The rest of the review committee, including me when I was the chair, I'm not a member of the ACGME. I'm not a member of the board. My role is simply to apply the rules that the ACGME board has established to make sure that training programs in thoracic surgery are fairly adhering to those rules and providing a uniform, high-quality educational experience. The ACGME, through its respective review committees, is charged with accrediting programs. Then you move to the other side, the ABMS. Within the ABMS, the American Board of Medical Specialties, which is sort of the parent institution for all the subspecialty boards. The American Board of Thoracic Surgery is a member of the ABMS. The American Board of Surgery is a member of the ABMS. And their job is is to certify individuals. They are not as interested in the training program itself. They are interested in the individuals, and it is their job to certify them and make them diplomats of their respective boards. The boards are there to protect people, as is the ACGME, the underlying mission for both of these organizations is make sure that there are high quality physicians being trained who will go out and the public will be protected. So the American Board of Thoracic Surgery, which is obviously our board, its role is to certify individuals who have completed their training. Now the board definitely relies on the ACGME and the quality standards that it puts into play on the training program. That's why a requirement to sit for your certification exam is to have completed training at an accredited program because it sets a level or a bar that they know everybody who finished an accredited program must have been exposed to a uniform set of criteria. And they use that as part of their certification process. But again, boards, they operate independently, they communicate with one another, and the executive director of the American Board of Thoracic Surgery sits as a non-voting member on the review committee for thoracic surgery so that that communication can take place. And similarly, the chair of the RC gives a report to the American Board of Thoracic Surgery during their meetings. Then you move over to the TSDA. The TSDA is simply an organization supporting program directors. It has no governing or rulemaking authority, although in the past it did say, look, you need to be a member of the TSDA, and to be a member of the TSDA, you need to participate in the match. This was back in the early 90s when the match was just starting, and there wanted to be some Encouragement to to participate in the match. Also, it's there to help vet you know complaints by program directors or trainees and the coordinators, and tries to be a voice for the program directors to move their concerns up the ladder to the accrediting bodies, both the ACGME and the ABTS. Does that make
1: sense? It does. That's very helpful. Thank you. Um, how often is the TSDA meeting and uh, what all are program directors discussing uh, alongside other GME governing bodies? So the TSPA Executive Committee, uh,
2: which is voted in with its bylaws, a very again uh, you know policy-driven sort of approach. Uh, the Executive Committee meets monthly by a telephone conference. Um, the Executive Committee, in fact, met last night. Uh, and discuss things. We can also call additional meetings as needed. For example, earlier this month, we called a meeting with Dr. Bill Putnam, who is the current chair of the American Board of Thoracic Surgery, in an effort to delineate just what the board was thinking in response to the letter that they put out. We just wanted to get clarity on that so that we could help disseminate that message
1: Ram directors in thoracic surgery. Very good. Uh, we will uh, discuss uh, the, uh, the board's letters in, in just a little bit, um, but in this respect, with regards to COVID-19, at what point did uh, you all start realizing that this was probably going to have a significant impact on resident training? So I think that impact began when the travel restrictions started dropping. Uh, I think so in March, that's when we started realizing that many of the activities of the
2: board, many of the activities of the ACGME relied on travel. Um, and so that was the first inclination that there was going to be a severe impact uh, on some elements of certification, some elements of accreditation, and even some elements of training. Uh, pretty quickly thereafter, you know, it became apparent to us that ACE volumes were going to be impacted And so discussions were held by the board, which I'm a member of. Uh, Early on uh, in uh, late March, those discussions began. We were supposed to have our spring meeting for the American Board of Thoracic Surgery in very early April, that first week of April. And so we had telephone conference calls,
1: obviously, and and Zoom calls uh, to discuss just those elements. So I would say that all of this started happening Uh, in late or mid-March, and then really uh, started uh, some products from those discussions started coming out in early April. Okay. Uh, Yeah, along that timeline, uh, on March 13th, the ACGME released a statement regarding resident fellow education um, and training considerations during COVID-19. Can you walk us through some of the highlights of that memo or or what the ACGME was, was saying so early on?
2: Right, so one of the first things they wanted to clarify is that they wanted to protect trainees in the work hours. Uh, They feel strongly that the data on work hours and abusing work hours leads to errors, and right now with a mission to protect the public, the last thing we need is to introduce more errors into our healthcare system, right? So first and foremost, they said, look, you're going to have to adhere to work hour requirements. That's going to stay standard. Uh, they did acknowledge that as hospitals became busier and busier and overwhelmed with COVID, the normal roles played by trainees may have to alter in order to help manage patient care. And so the next sort of section of that email talks about rotations and talks about the fact that you may have to change rotations and do this. And they just blanket that look, if you make a change of four weeks in duration, more than four weeks, Just report that to the executive director of the review committee. As I said, that is the ACGME employee who participates in the review committee functions. Our executive director is Chris Fox, and so she would be the one you would report to. Anything less than four-week changes in duration, just do it and move on. Um, Time away from required rotations. They acknowledge, as I said, that this may impact board eligibility. And so they have a statement that addresses potential disruptions, but when it comes to certification, they ask you to talk to your respective boards. They they each board is different, board of internal medicine, board of pediatrics, board of surgery. And so they said, look, you're gonna have to work with your boards when it comes to the impact on certification. And then there is the clinical and educational expectations that they talk about. Um, One of the issues that we can talk about now or later is fellowship training has a unique position in that those trainees are usually board eligible or even board certified in their core discipline. For us in traditional programs, that would be general surgery since most of the traditional trainees are board eligible in general surgery, actually have to be. And so...
1: Uh, they also described or, or at least you can now find resources In which uh, the ACG means Talks about sort of three stages Of graduate medical education During uh, the COVID pandemic What are these three stages? Yeah,
2: so stage one, two, and three uh, Were the ones Essentially um, Let me go to that website If I can Because uh, I don't want to say something
1: Appropriate. Sure. Uh, going
2: have to find
1: that website, hold on, I'm oh. um, here. At least from what I was able to gather uh, while, while you're uh, gathering information. Stage one seemed to be kind of a, uh, a broad blanket statement saying that uh, uh, education wasn't going to be significantly impacted. Business would kind of go on as usual, um, but there would be a little bit of flexibility in in some of the requirements that the ACGME would use for accreditation-related activities. Yes, I found it, and that's exactly right.
2: Um, One of the big issues that got suspended, and, and that's, you know, the ACGME just said everybody in the United States is now essentially at stage one, and that's because, you know, with travel restrictions in place, doing site visits became exceedingly difficult. Um, I sit on the RC for thoracic surgery. We were supposed to have our spring review committee meeting last week. Uh, instead, we did it by Zoom uh, and reviewed programs and discussed them as a committee. But still, uh, we were unable to discuss a number of programs because their site visit couldn't take place, because there was no travel and there was restrictions and, and the idea of sitting down across. The ACGME is looking into the idea of doing Zoom or virtual-based ones. Stage two comes along when you start seeing your residents and fellows needing to be shifted in their patient care duties. So this is more than just not doing cases. This is where, I'm sorry, you're not going to do that rotation anymore. We need you to do this rotation. When you reach that stage, you need to let the ACGME know Uh, and so there are some specific changes that take place and requirements uh, that come into effect once you hit stage two and then stage three is when you're in a pandemic situation obviously where all hands on deck you're essentially doing nothing other than taking care of COVID patients and yeah there are a few institutions in this country which have reached that level uh, and essentially uh, they've reached this stage three, so you actually, specialty-specific requirements are now waived as
1: well. Okay. So on March 18th, uh, the ACGB had sort of issued this blanket statement saying everyone's in this uh, stage one setting with regards to the pandemic. Um, other programs may be closer to stage two or stage three. Kind of bouncing back to your... your uh, uh, comments earlier, can fellows, surgical fellows, be permitted or assigned to work as an attending physician in general surgery or somewhere else where they may be certified?
2: Right. So that requirement actually has already been in the requirements, that that ability to do that. So as I said before, if you are in a fellowship accredited program, like our traditional two and three years or our four threes that means you are board eligible or board certified already in general surgery and there is a requirement in the common program requirements that says that fellows can work up to 20% of their time I think it is in their core specialty uh, and still meet requirements of their fellowship training now in cardiothoracic surgery with a two-year training program the idea of spending a few months doing general surgery doesn't really sit very well with the RC or with the board obviously that would be an enormous chunk of time in a 24 month period where you're trying to learn how to do cardiothoracic surgery so We've not been that excited about, you know, getting our fellows to do, you know, two or three months of general surgery while they're in training. That being said, the ability to do that is allowable, and in this crisis, especially when you get up into the stage two or for certain into the stage three, I think utilizing fellows as general surgeons without it impacting the ACGME's requirements is there. I can't speak to how that would impact your board certification eligibility. That being said, if you're in such a deep state at your hospital that they need you to do general surgery because too many of the general surgeons are sick at home with COVID, um, there are many other things impacting your education at that point that are far uh, probably more
1: impactful than you spending a few weeks taking care of some appendectomies. Absolutely. I've heard um, quite a few concerns about folks saying that uh, they were potentially going to have to serve as an independent uh, physician or as an attending during this time. But uh, it's interesting to hear that that's actually something that's uh, not specific to just the COVID pandemic at all. Um, No,
2: it's not. A lot of it was driven by, say, some of the fellowship programs like, say, infectious disease where an individual who does a fellowship training in infectious disease, when they go out into practice, they wanna be a full practicing internal medicine doctor with a specialization, say, in infectious disease, right? And their concern was if they spent an entire year or two in infectious disease fellowship, they would, not, they would lose those skills, all right? And so this was pushed forward as a way for people to maintain their core skills while developing additional fellowship training. But again, as I said, in cardiothoracic surgery, and really there are there are very few of us who go out and practice full-born general surgery while doing our cardiothoracic practice. And also, it's a huge discipline we've got to learn in, in a matter of just 24
1: months in some cases. And so most program directors and certainly the board doesn't think that's in your best interest. Do you think that the uh, ACGME and the other boards, um, with regards to the different stages of the uh, COVID pandemic uh, and education, do you think that their primary concern here is protecting residents and their education? So the ACGME and the board, again,
2: have two different roles, but I think both of them are wanting to do two things simultaneously right? They definitely, the ACGME definitely wants to protect the trainees. I mean, that's the whole reason that they're saying, look, keep the duty hours in place. We don't want to put our trainees at risk. Make sure you're aware that they they have their well-being. There are some, some in um, some of their FAQs, there's a thing about wellness and making sure that you stay focused on this. At the same time, though, the ACGME is determined to produce um, The product of those training programs should be a safe and competent individual who can deliver good quality health care to the public. We don't want to put the public in jeopardy. There is a public member on the Thoracic Surgery Review Committee and on pretty much all of the review committees to ensure that the public's interests are being met. Similarly, at the American Board of Thoracic Surgery and in most of the ABMS boards, there is a public member as well on that because the board's duty is also to protect the public when we certify an individual we're saying that that individual is safe for the public and and can deliver cardiothoracic surgical care so yes they want to protect the trainee but they also have a duty to protect the public and
1: they're trying to do that dual purpose at the same time makes complete sense um What are sort of the expectations going forward with regards to uh, didactics during this time or educational conferences, journal clubs, uh, things of that nature that uh, typically are are necessary for a training environment? Yeah, I I think that is entirely dependent upon the institution, uh, but the ACGME
2: has certainly not said you shouldn't have these things. What they have said is you should adhere to the rules at your institution about you know, the size of groups that can meet and, you know, distancing and and masks and all of that sort of stuff. But obviously there are many other ways to have a didactic than sitting together in a room in close proximity. I I, I think institutions should explore those and certainly continue to uh, provide educational
1: activities. Uh, Perhaps the most relevant question to a lot of our our graduating uh, trainees or even the younger uh, trainees in integrated programs who are concerned about their ability to uh, maybe move forward and and uh, get into their next year of education. Um, are programs required to submit milestones, or are residents and fellows uh, going to be required to meet their case log minimum going forward?
2: In your training program I get it that it's a totally different program But I think professionalism milestones certainly can be met Communication milestones certainly can be met Medical knowledge milestones Definitely still can be met Um, The in-training exam went forward As you know And and so there certainly is Many, many, many aspects To training uh, Other than just standing at the bedside Or doing a specific case So yes milestones will go forward. The only change we made is we had an option to initiate milestones 2.0 this year or next year uh, and the milestones committee very prudently said, yeah, let's do that next year. (laughs) We have no interest in introducing any new changes now. In terms of case logs, um, the board, uh, you know, released a statement on that, uh, the American Board of Thoracic Surgery. And the TSDA, after they met with Bill Putnam, also released a statement reinforcing and adding uh, sort of some, some details in terms of how to actually move forward uh, with the, uh, the steps that were delineated in the board's letter. Um, I think the underlying thing is there will be flexibility at the level of the board when looking at case minimums, all right? Not all uh, inabilities to reach case minimums are created equal, correct? Sure. I think missing one or two cases in a case minimum is a very different situation than missing a large swath of case minimum. Uh, and, and we will listen and, and, and discuss each situation as they arise. Mm-hmm. I, I will say that where pressure is being placed is on the program directors themselves. They are going to have to think in a different way about how they remediate, how they train. They're going to have to look further ahead. They're going to have to look for other assessment tools to make decisions other than simply relying on case minimums.
1: In that respect, um, sort of the downstream effects of what could be happening in in 2020, uh, will folks who anticipate graduating in 2021 be given that same leeway on a case-by-case basis of looking at their um, case volumes if they weren't able to meet all their uh, minimums? So, uh, you know, we
2: obviously discussed that with Dr. Putnam. Uh, I can tell you that at this point in time, as I know everybody's (laughs) <laughs> is severely limited. As Yogi Berra said, you know, the problem with predictions is they're always about the future. <laughs> and uh, it's really difficult to predict the future right now. Sure.
1: I know you guys have have discussed these issues in a bit of depth. Um, Any any discussion about not allowing residents or uh, fellows who have matched to start their training on time or to limit the number of residents who programs will accept? Or is that going to be case by case as well and sort of undetermined?
2: Mm-hmm. All right? They're going to have to assess their own individual location. Not every program is the same. You know, uh, and, and even in similar programs, different pathways, right, are different. You know, accepting an I-6 resident who's going to be with you for six years is a very different question than taking in a traditional two-year over the next two years. Absolutely. Uh, so I, I can't say that. Certainly the NRMP has not changed anything. <laughs> We, we are formulating our match list as we speak right now in our institution, so I, I've heard nothing from them. The ACGME is not involved in matching, but certainly if a program in a foolish manner pushes forward by matching individuals when it barely has the cases to graduate the people it is doing, it. that, that, that may be something
1: that rises up to the scrutiny of the review committee. All right. As far as other changes, um, anything that the the board has put out, the thoracic surgery board has put out with regards to changes in scheduling or um, board examinations, anything like that?
2: Yes.
1: position, I believe, of the board. Okay. Um, so, so I just want to take a moment. I know our time is running short here. Um, I think everyone uh, should go ahead and take a look at some of the resources on the TSDA website, uh, which has these letters uh, by Dr. Putnam, but the ACGME, uh, the TSDA. Um, and so in response to uh, the ABTS statement on the 6th, uh, your team with the Thoracic Surgery Directors Association put out a response to that um, just a couple days later. Uh, Can you run through uh, some of the responses that the, the TSDA had in response to the thoracic board? Yeah, for the most part the TSDA
2: simply reiterated the position of the board that yes we want to look at case minimums, we will be flexible in how we look at it but there was a number of sort of Issues that the the board has to um, deal with when making decisions. Some of which we've talked about right now. Right, the issue of protecting the public. The issue that case law minimums are just that. They are minimums. Uh, they are not meant to be uh, um, you know all you need. They were the absolute bare minimum you need. And a number of other items that the board has to consider when making these statements. You know, if we reduce minimums this year, and then next year, will a trainee say, "Hey, you know, my colleague, a graduate last year, was able to get out with only this many. Why am I now being held to this same standard?" Right? Right. There has to be consistency in our in our credentialing or our certification process. Um, the rest of the letter really just sort of bullet points for program directors, which the TSDA's responsibility is to the program directors and the coordinators, saying, you know, what steps you should do. And essentially it said, look, you need to be looking ahead at how your trainees are performing, what their case logs currently are. Don't wait till just before your CCC committee meets to, uh, you know, get your trainees to log all their cases. Do it now. Start looking at it. Start making some estimates as to how many cases they might get done, maybe you know target cases for certain trainees who are have a larger gap than maybe another trainee, and be ready to reach out to the board before the end of April if you feel one of your trainees is gonna be in trouble so that you can have that
1: discussion. Yeah, I think that's an important point to highlight is that uh, by April 30th, they're asking that you have concerns uh, send a message to the ABTS uh, or, or call them um, to, to see what next steps might be and if there's eligibility still for, um, for moving forward in your training. Um, with that, uh, are there any other comments or, or uh, pieces of information you'd like to share with our trainees today? And the TSDA
2: understands just how stressful this is.
1: We look forward to to seeing uh, what lies ahead and uh, what other comments you all will make uh, in the coming uh, weeks and months. Um, and I, I really can't thank you enough on behalf of the, the, the Thoracic Surgery Residents Association uh, for all of your help and taking the time today. Um, so thank you. My pleasure.